You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, well, you might find. Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here on prn.fm, Progressive Radio Network, Mondays at 10 a.m. On Visionaries, we talk about creativity in the arts, sciences, technology, culture, and spirituality, and about how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energies of the cosmos. Um, I'm going to digress as we go along here. I'm an academic. I teach, uh, I teach architecture at Pratt Institute, and I follow a lot of academic journals and you know, write books that are in the academic world. And a lot of the things we're addressing on this show, <clears throat> maybe they should be addressed in psychology, sociology. But if you're a professor or academic in psychology or sociology, you can't talk about the uh, energies of the cosmos. How would, you, how would you measure the change in the energies of the cosmos in your rats after, before and after you run them through mazes? So we have an opportunity here to talk about things. It can't really be addressed elsewhere. Along the way, we talk to some of the most interesting visionaries about the world we live in and the worlds they're creating for tomorrow. And before we go on with today's show, I just want to remind you about some past shows. <clears throat> you can find them all online at visionaries.podbean.com. So you go there, they'll pop up, you can click on them, download them, listen to them, and See how many downloads have been. They're adding up. Wow. So on October 10th, I talked about technological optimism. And, you know, I love listening to Progressive Radio Network. We hear a lot of negativity, unfortunately, because there's a lot of bad things going on in the world. But uh, and we hear about some of the negative negative impacts of technology. So I wanted to talk about some of the positive ones and you'll find find that at that show. And if you go to, uh, for each of these shows, I'll give you some other references. I guess most of us are listening on computers, laptops, cell phones, tablets. So right while you listen, you can pop over and follow up on references. And for that one, if you go to YouTube and search on John LaBelle, Technological Optimism, you'll find uh, a lecture with PowerPoint slides uh, uh, on the same subject. On October 3rd, we had Natasha Vita Moore, who's an advocate for radical life extension and human enhancement and the most prominent transhumanist. And so she has great stuff on our websites. You'll find them at Natasha dot cc, n-a-t-a-s-h-a dot c-c. And we had a great discussion with her. I hope you, if you didn't, uh, you'll get a chance to listen to it. On September 26th, we interviewed Bob Walter, the president of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. I spent many years 
uh, knowing Joseph Campbell, going to his lectures, interviewing him. I even had him on Gary Knoll's old uh, radio uh, show from years ago on WBAI. So we're looking for the tape of that. And maybe we can broadcast it again here sometime. But we listened to a bit of Joseph Campbell and talked about his impact on our culture. And I recall that, talking about how old I am, way back when bookstores were important, the bookstore in New York was the A Street Bookstore. And so that was my hangout. I even had a charge account there. I can't believe it. And uh, maybe that's why I still have a storage unit full of books. But <clears throat> there was this shelf in, in, in a row where all these books by Joseph Campbell. I didn't know how to penetrate them. Which one do you start with? They all look kind of dense. And so uh, listen to this show and we'll tell you which ones to start with, how to get into Campbell. And it's really very accessible, including the great uh, uh, Joseph Campbell with Bill Moyers and the Power of Myth interviews. You can get those on CD and you can, uh, they were adopted as a book. So uh, that's one place to start the, um, the Myths to Live By is another great one to start with. Some of the others are kind of dense, but uh, well worth it. And then I spoke on September 19th. We had Louis Arana and you know, one of the things you can do if you listen to this show, which I'm learning how to do, <laughs> I'm going to mention uh, Facebook and and uh, Facebook and Twitter in a minute. And whenever I do, I mention that I, I pay students to tutor me on how to use those things. But if you friend Louis Arana, L-U-I-S-A-R-A-N-A, you'll keep up on his work in artificial intelligence. He has an online creature that he talks to and he teaches and you can watch him doing it. So uh, really great stuff. He's uh, just starting, I think, a new job you'll find about online. He's associated with Robots Without Borders. And he's very interesting in issues like robotics, uh, providing health care for the elderly and Things like, he, for example, he set up the dispatch system for an uh, ambulance service, so which ambulance goes out first and all that kind of stuff, but then also uh, helping the ambulance workers deal with patients. And, uh, you know, in a previous show, you might remember, we talked about the tricorder. It's coming. So remember Bones in the Star Trek uh, episodes. Somebody would be injured or ill or, you know, there would be an alien creature and it's in a coma. They don't know what's going on. And he waves this smartphone-sized thing over uh, the ill entity and it does a complete diagnosis and maybe even a treatment. And it's coming. So uh, we'll talk about, we talk on that show about that kind of thing. Back on September 12th, You'll find on the archives, I talked about my book, Visionary Creativity, and uh, let's take a look at it. So the book is Visionary Creativity, How New Worlds Are Born. And, you know, <laughs> talking about reality out there, I've got maybe 30 books on my, 
on my smartphone that I listen to audiobooks. But to actually sit down and read a book when there's all this fantastic stuff on television. So, you know, we don't read books so much anymore. So I summarized the whole book on the front cover in two sentences. Visionary creatives swim in the culture of our day. The things they create in art, design, science, technology, business, embody our culture and at the same time pull us into the future. So that's what the book's about. You'll find it on Amazon.com, on BarnesandNoble.com, and I blog about it at VisionaryCreativity.com. So there you can look at discussions about the book, etc. So again, those are on the Progressive Radio Network, PRN Archives, and you find them at visionaries.podbean.com. So V-I-S-I-O-N-A-R-I-E-S dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N is a Nancy dot com. And just a bit about me uh, to keep us up to date. I'm a professor of architecture at Pratt Institute, written a few books, which you'll find if you search on Amazon, as I said, at blog at visionarycreativity.com, you can find out more about me, resumes, PDFs of my books, PDFs of articles, all that kind of stuff at johnlabelle.com. And you can friend me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter, uh, <laughs> assuming there's stuff there if I learn how to use it. So, uh, but uh, definitely try to keep in touch there. And I said, as I said, I usually have a guest on this show, most interesting people I can find. But today I want to talk about something else. And let's just call it our computational universe. And to introduce what I mean by that, I'm going to read one of my favorite quotes from the mathematician Stephen Wolfram. Stephen is with a Ph. And again, hop online. You can track him down. Wolfram once said, I don't know if you'll find this online because I was at a conference, you know, when he said it. But he says, I think when I find the code that generates our world, it'll be about six lines. What does that mean? <laughs> and what he means is, uh, well, let's back up. So there's a tricky question, and that is, what is the question? Of course, the question is, any hands? Are we living in the matrix? And uh, we know the answer because it was on Big Bang Theory. They're in the cafeteria. And Sheldon says, do you know how I know we're not living in the matrix? And uh, Leonard says, no, how? He says, the food would be better. <laughs> but... There's some people that uh, don't buy it. So I just, uh, before uh, stopping in for today's show, went online because I had seen something. So I put billionaires and matrix. And I come up with the, um, the news piece from The Independent. Tech billionaires convinced we live in the matrix are secretly funding scientists to help break us out of it. <laughs> so, um, you know, we can have different feelings about these new instant billionaires. And I guess 
I don't want to, you know, in future shows when we do call-ins on this, uh, get some of your thoughts. But maybe when a banker gets rich, we get annoyed because they mm, don't necessarily provide useful services and are, uh, to be a little harsh, ripping all of us off. <clears throat> but when, you know, Steve Jobs or or Bill Gates get rich, they've provided something. Uh, they built something new that if we ignored would flop, and we didn't ignore it. People use it, and they're successful. So one of the things that happens is some of these billionaires say, you know, I see things that need to be done. And rather than saying, okay, now how do we get uh, should we pass legislation, start a foundation, write a book. Just to tell you how old I am, I remember when Jean Chevron Schreiber wrote a book about the United States of Europe, advocating that Europe had to be more united. And, you know, common currency, uh, reduced borders, et cetera, et cetera, which is now under discussion again, but it put the idea out there for people to react to. But today, some some cases, these billionaires can just do it. So <clears throat> Jeff Bezos of Amazon says, we've got to be going to space. So he, he builds uh, a company to take people to space. You can sign up right now, go into, go into low Earth orbit. Uh, same thing with Elon Musk. He says, we, uh, yeah, you know, we're not going to make it as a one-planet species. We've got to spread out a bit. It's time to get a colony going on Mars. And he builds SpaceX. And they launch satellites. They're building their rockets now to go to Mars. Uh, people are signing up. And we'll see how it pans out. Sometimes these things make sense. Sometimes they don't. But these people can do these things. We'll talk in a future show about life extension, extreme life extension, not just how to be healthy to 100, but how to live to two, three, 400. And there are people working on that. And one of them is Peter Diamantes, who I spoke about in a previous show. He has a company working on that. And you might recall a few years back, the big dog got involved. And cover of Time magazine, can Google solve death? And so they're working on it. Google has put set up a whole division, funded it with a billion dollars, put some top people in charge of it, and they're working on it. What, what causes aging? How do you turn it off? <clears throat> and there are a handful of other companies working on it. Peter Thiel's working on it. We know him from the Social Network movie. He's the one of the people who funded Facebook and quite a few other things and is one of our Silicon Valley billionaire venture capitalists. And these people, they're, they're getting a bit older. You know, they're hitting their 40s, and they're realizing they might eventually die. And they well, how do you fix that? <laughs> well, it'll take a lot of research. How much research? Here's a check. So a few of them got this idea that we're stuck in a matrix. They want to fund uh, whatever's needed to get us out. So let's just take a look and see what we've got here. Some of the world's richest and most powerful people are convinced that we're living in a computer simulation, and now they're trying to do something about it. 
At least two of Silicon Valley's tech billionaires are pouring money into efforts to break humans out of the simulation that they believe it is living in, according to a new report. So uh, it's not exactly what I want to talk about today. Maybe, maybe we're in a matrix, and I'm a fan of Ed Fredkin, who believes the universe is a computer. The universe is a com running computer program. Now, who's running it? What's its purpose? He's working on it. But he's taken seriously because he's a major figure. He developed the notion of reversible or energy-free computation. So just a digression. You might have noticed I like to do that. Computers use a lot of energy. You know about the server farms out in the middle of nowhere, Google or Amazon or Apple will build acres and acres of buildings and inside are just rows and rows of shelving as far as the eye can see. With computers, that are pretty much like our laptops or desktops, uh, except stripped down. But they're no more special or powerful. It's just that there's lots of them, like tens of thousands of them. And they use a lot of power and they generate a lot of heat. So they're sucking up local power, and they're running a lot of air conditioning. And so what if you could make them more efficient, use less power? Now, it should, you would say, well, it can't be zero because, you know, then you're talking about getting something for nothing. And information is a reality. You can't process information without some energy, except Fredkin showed that you can. And what he showed is that a computer chip is a bunch of switches, and it's, they switch as they go through the, like, whatever the calculation is they're doing. And then when they're done, they have to go back to their zero state so they can do the next, the next round of switching, which they do millions of times or billions of times per second. And... It's when they go back to the zero state, they, in effect, throw away energy going back to the zero state. But what if you could go through the calculation, and as you finish the calculation, you're back in the zero state. You never throw away energy, and you have what's called energy-free computing or reversible computing. So Fredkin worked that out. He pioneered that notion, and so he's taken seriously, and people are nosing around, you know, is the universe a computer? And again, hop into Google, take a look, and let's see if I have some of my printouts for today. Uh, you'll find out about Fredkin in a great book called Quest for the Quantum Computer by um, Julian Brown. So again, Hop on to Amazon, look that up. You should be able to get, yep, hardcover used editions for a penny. Got to pay pay three ninety five shipping, but uh, pick up a used one. It's a little bit difficult. It actually stressed out my little bit of math that I've got. I did, you know, I did calculus in college, and that was it. I haven't done anything since. Except I did, I did a course in computer science a few years ago, and that was really hard. It involved some finite math, 
which is really tricky. But I could follow this book, so give it a try. See, see what you can do. A lot of great stuff in it. So I said that there are these people out there that are proposing that the universe is a computer program and we're in it. And I, that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about something a little bit different. And what I want to talk about is a notion that we all know what the world is. And we're probably never going to know what the world is. But we have our understanding of it, our worldview. And the key thing about a worldview is that it changes. That's what history is. And in particular, I teach history of art and architecture, so I'm knee-deep in you know, history and why they did what they did in the Renaissance, during the Baroque, in modern art. And these are not just changes in, in the art styles, but they are, in fact, changes in how we view and experience the world. And we then represent the way we are manifest, the way we view and experience the world in our art and architecture. So if we jump around, you know, let's start, for example, very broadly with cultures across the world, and we see uh, differences between views in ancient China, where it was maybe a view of the flow of all things, what we call the Tao. And it's our job to put ourselves in harmony with that flow. And the architecture of China and Japan allows nature to flow through it the way we should be in harmony with the flow of nature. And you look at Chinese and Japanese art, and you see that the human figures are not distinguished or popped out from nature, but integrated with and a part of it. Contrast that with, for example, the West in the Renaissance, Mona Lisa. And there we have the human figure very much in the foreground, and then nature in the background, very much dominated by the human figure. So this idea that human beings stand out from, dominate, control, understand, measure nature is a Renaissance idea. And it's very much present in their Renaissance art. It's what perspective is. Perspective is what does the world look like from my point of view. So the human being becomes central. And we see, for example, in Renaissance architecture, the building on top of the hill so that the human being can survey out. So those of you who are art and architecture buffs, think of Palladio's Villa Rotunda, which sits at the top of the hill and is symmetrical in both directions. So that, like being at the center of an X, Y, and Z coordinates, Cartesian coordinates, the human being can measure front, back, left, right, up, down, up with the dome. So that puts the human being in the center from where you can measure. You can't measure unless you know where you're standing. And we then introduce dynamism into this understanding with the Baroque. So if we go back to the Renaissance, you know, earlier we've got, for example, Galileo's Gal uh, solar system 
It is um, circular orbits, and with Newton, they become elliptical. And then, uh, so, you know, the arts become dynamic, and figures are in action. So let's then look at where we are today. We've seen the dissolution of the human being and cubism, but now we get to today. And what, how do we understand, how do we see the world? And so let's look at a few key ideas in, let's, uh, let's use science, and we'll start with Bell's theorem. And Bell's theorem sees that particles can become entangled. What does it mean when particles become entangled? Two subatomic particles will encounter each other, and once they do, they'll be reflective of each other until they're disturbed, even across the universe. So that by looking at one particle or disturbing one particle, we can know the condition of the other particle instantaneously, and we can disturb the other particle instantaneously, even across the universe. Now, faster than the speed of light. Unfortunately, it can't be used to send information, but it does show that the universe is tied together in ways that are totally beyond, shall we say, our conventional understanding. The universe is not wired up as space, time, distance, and, you know, well, there's this big grid and it extends out from the galaxy and things are so far away or a million times further away or a billion times further away and they are back a billion light years away, back a billion years in time. No, it's all one instantaneous dot. <laughs> integrated all to, all together and so a totally different point of view here and so we see that in bell's theorem and it tells us about a very different world we might look for example at what's called indra's net and so there are many tellings but we read a wondrous net hangs in... Now, Indra is a sort of the, the Zeus thunder god, thunder lightning god of India. A wondrous net hangs in Indra's heavenly abode, stretching in all directions infinitely. At each intersection of the net is a multifaceted jewel, each facet of each jewel reflecting all of the other jewels. And this image of each facet of each jewel contains not only all the other jewels, but in those images, all the jewels again and again as deeply as we look. So, okay, here's an ancient Indian image of the universe as a net of jewels, each faceting reflecting the others, but the others also include all the others, so that it infinitely regresses as deeply as we want to look. That's beginning to sound like the universe we live in. Uh, this is not just this ancient Indian idea, but 
It's beginning to be confirmed by a lot that's going on in science. So then we, so that's what Bell's theorem is telling us. And I remember when people started talking about Bell's theorem, he, you know, was really hot in the mid-60s. I started to teach in the 70s and 69, 70, went over to the physics department where I teach and I said, can I talk about, can you guys explain Bell's theorem to me? And they said, no, we don't talk about that. <laughs> we don't want to know about that. That's not, we can't, we can't handle that. Well, this entanglement is now used every day. It's how modern cryptology is done. It's fundamental to quantum computers, which we're just starting to get the first generations of. So here's this thing, which is this really far out idea, and now is suddenly starting to happen in our world. So quantum computers are going to be infinitely more powerful than today's computers. The way, the way it's explained is that, let's say you had a million names in a phone book and they're not in, or phone directory in a computer, but they're not in any order. You want to find a given name. So your cursor has to hit on every name till it finds the one you, you're looking for. So in, on average, it'll have to look at a half a million names before it finds the one you're looking for. Your name might be the first one, it might be the last one, but on average, it'll be in the middle. Uh, in quantum, the quantum world, a particle, an electron, can be in many places at the same time. So our cursor can be in a thousand places. You can look at, or a million places. You can in one shot look at a million different names in the computer, find the one you're looking at instead of, you know, 500,000. Well, how does it do that? And David Deutsch, one of the pioneers of quantum computing, likes to say, well, it harnesses its siblings in parallel universes. You know, this comes from the many worlds theory where when an electron has to, or a subatomic particle, has to split and go in one of two directions, um, which one does it go in? Well, we don't know until it does, but the many worlds theory says, well, at that point, the universe splits and it goes in both directions. One in one universe and the other in another universe. And that's the parallel universe. So quantum computers harness those parallel universes. Now, at the same time, we get work being done by a biologist named Lynn Margulis, recently died, really amazing figure. And she's responsible for a theory of symbiogenesis. And this theory uh, builds on earlier work she did Symbiogenesis is very controversial, but her earlier work is totally accepted. And that is, we notice that in every cell is something called a mitochondria. A mitochondria is the sort of energy factory of the cell. It's what takes the nutrients and converts them into energy. And the mitochondria has different DNA from the rest of our cells. So our DNA comes half from our father and half from our mother, except the mitochondria DNA comes in a straight shot, 100% from the mother, and there's no other DNA. So well, how does this happen? What is this? We have the same thing in plants with the chloroplasts, which are the 
little centers in each cell that do the photosynthesis. It has its own DNA. Well, what Limmargulis proposed and is now totally accepted is that these mitochondria and chloroplasts were originally independent bacteria, and they got swallowed up into cells and ended up staying there, and the cells they were in ended up being our ancestors. So, okay, that tells us that DNA can move around. Bacteria move DNA around. And then she observes that, you know, viruses go hauling DNA all over the place. We have, as we sequenced the human genome, we found all this foreign DNA in there, all kinds of stuff. We've got cat DNA in us that some virus at some point moved into our ancestors from our, probably from our pet cats, all kinds of other stuff. So this stuff is moving around as in, all you got to do is sneeze, <laughs> right? And you're blowing bacteria full of DNA all over the place. Well, how much bacteria are we talking about here? And it turns out that there's about two and a half pounds of bacteria in your body. The bacteria in our bodies weighs almost as much as our brains. And it turns out they are big parts of <clears throat> how we function. They're part of our digestive system, immune system. It turns out they may play a key role in cancer. And there are new forms of treatment of saying, oh, you got, you got the wrong or inadequate bacteria in your body. We got to put the right ones in there. Everybody's out taking probiotics now, but that's not really going to do the job. Other methods will have to be have to be developed. And it's very tricky. What exactly are you missing? But the point is, this stuff is moving all over. And then she proposes something very radical. So we'll remember that Niels Elbridge and Stephen Jay Gould proposed a theory of evolution called punctuated, uh, punctuated equilibrium. And that's the notion that, no, Darwin was not right that change takes place gradually over millions of years, but rather change takes place very suddenly. Most creatures come into existence, remain pretty much stable until they become, if they do, extinct. And totally different creatures pop up. How's that happening? Well, they gave it a name. They observed it. Elbridge and Stephen Jay Gould gave it a name, but they didn't explain it. And <clears throat> Lynn Margulis explains it by saying that whole big chunks of DNA, whole genomes get moved around by bacteria and viruses. And it's this movement of these big chunks of DNA that create the new species. And then, of course, natural selection will sort through it. But she says natural selection, this 150-year-old mechanistic vision of you know, slight variations and some do better and some do worse and they, they go forward and then they get modified more. This mechanistic explanation just doesn't work. And there are this whole other things going on. And she really gets off on bacteria, you know, that they're responsible for things like gold in gold mines. You say, well, wait a minute, that's a mineral. Yeah, and there are bacteria that consume and move around that mineral over billions of years. They make metal nodules that we find on the bottom of the ocean. They do all kinds of stuff. They're seen now in the atmosphere, responsible for 
whole big aspects of weather. It's not just dust up there, but bacteria, and it's involved in very complicated activities. So this whole new fields of science are just opening. And then the big one, obviously, is DNA itself. <clears throat> so with Watson and Crick in 1953, we knew about DNA. We didn't know its structure, and we didn't know its role. There was a dispute whether DNA or protein contained the genetic code. And what Watson and Crick were able to do was to determine the structure of DNA. And it turns out you have these base pairs, which are abbreviated A, C, T, and G, and they can link in certain ways. And by the way they link, they allow the DNA double helix molecule to reproduce, and they can transfer information to RNA, which then takes it out of the nucleus to where proteins are built in the cells. So we're beginning to understand that process and harness it. So we can do now recombinant DNA, we can redo your DNA, and, you know, we're fiddling around, we're knee-deep, and we, uh, on this station object to it uh, quite often, GMOs, genetically modified, modified organisms in many of our foods. In a lot of cases, it's very difficult to avoid them in a grocery store. And if you get GMO-free grains, they probably, you know, because they get blown around by the weather, um, it's really hard to get them totally GMO-free. But anyway, uh, we're doing that. And we're on the verge of, for better or worse, uh, modifying human beings and maybe finding ways to make meat without animals, just the way we harnessed yeast thousands of years ago to make beer. Uh, we can start harnessing other organisms in other ways as we design them. So, for example, as we mentioned on our previous show, Craig Venter is very big on this rebuilding the DNA of organisms. He's identified what's the minimum amount of DNA an organism needs to function, done things like that. And he's working on trying to engineer an algae that can make a thousand times as much synthetic fuel, ethanol, alcohol, ethanol alcohol for our cars, as does corn. So that instead of taking what should be food for people around the world and burning it in our cars, we'll have these ponds out in Nevada in the desert, and they'll be making huge amounts of ethanol through this uh, genetically engineered bacteria. So we become aware that we are computational. We've got this DNA, the DNA computes, it generates a world, namely us. And as I recalled, and you may recall as I described in a previous program, we're starting to think of other ways to use this. Actual DNA is used for computing, and there are ways in which DNA computing is going to be much more faster, more powerful than the silicon-based computing we do, and people are working on that. But here's now where I disagree with, are we living in the matrix? 
And I think a more interesting question, and of course, if we are in the matrix and we break out, that'll be fun. We'll find out what's out there, but uh, not too likely. But who knows? But much more interesting, I think, is that we're thinking in this new and different way that we no longer live in a world that is space, time, and energy, and causality, and the laws of physics. That was Newton's world. That was hundreds of years ago. And we've since been in Maxwell's world of electronic fields, and we've since been in the Einsteinian world of relativity and the world of uh, the quantum world, but now we're in a world of computation. I like to use an analogy. You know that famous painting by Surratt, Sunday in the Park? And we stand back and we look at it, and we see these very stately classical figures, <clears throat> not moving, very still, very classical in their outline. But if we zoom in, as we come in close, we see that they are not really coherent figures. They are instead, in fact, thousands and thousands of little dots. And these dots are shimmering. Now let's go and sort of mix our metaphor and imagine each of these dots is a, a little computer. It's a little DNA. It's something doing computation. It's one of the gems in Indra's net that's reflecting all the others. And they're all linked to each other. They're all networked. And so we now live in a world made up of computational entities that are generating themselves and each other and are all networked and linked. Now, those can be the part, the DNA in ourselves, those can be us as we become linked and networked through social networks. So we're in this totally different world than the one we had once thought we were living in. And to me, that is more interesting than the thought that we might be in the matrix. So, yes, we might be in a matrix. Uh, interesting ideas out there, and we, uh, you know, we wonder, is it really true? But this idea of DNA and genomics, that our whole world is computational, it's churning away. The bacteria in us that have their own DNA, 90% of the DNA in our bodies is not our DNA. It's the DNA of the bacteria that are living with us, and we're interacting with it and exchanging with it. What does this mean? We haven't even begun to understand and start to live in that world. So that's what I'm advocating for today. So just you know, a little tutorial. James Watson and Francis Crick in 1953 found these base pairs, which we'll just refer to as A, G, C, and T, and that they're just two simple rules. A and T can link, and G and C can link. So the two strands of DNA, the famous double helix, has these base pairs linked. If you pull it apart, the A will go find another 
um, sea to link with and rebuild itself. So it pulls apart and two halves each rebuild themselves, which is how cells reproduce and how we pass on the information at the core of our lives. This DNA then generates RNA, which is used to assemble proteins. But at the same time they were doing this, something else was going on. Johnny von Neumann, a, a mathematician and, well, Hungarian-American mathematician, scientist, computer scientist. The computer we use today is sometimes called a von Neumann machine as well as a Turing machine because its architecture was worked out by von Neumann. And working with Stanislav Ohm at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, they started looking at cellular automata to explore machines that could reproduce themselves. So remember, in a previous show, I asked the question, if you wanted to make an oak tree, you would not stick a telephone pole in the ground, nail some sticks to it, and glue leaves on the sticks. You would, raise your hands, put an acorn in the ground, let the oak tree make itself, let it do the work. <laughs> so all the information for making an oak tree is in that acorn. So we can make oak trees with acorns. We can make human beings. And we do it all the time. Why aren't we making our cell phones that way? And we've got a long way to go. Uh, we're working with nanotechnology, a top building atom by atom. But what Ohm and von Neumann were interested in is, could you make machines that would self-replicate? Could you make a little you know, computer that would sit in a junkyard and go find pieces to assemble itself. And I remember in 1950s science fiction editorial, there would be some science in the science fiction magazines. And one of the writers described, so you make this little aluminum robot that's got a little furnace and it can make, it can make itself. And you put it on the moon. And it's busy away, digging away, gets aluminum out of the the lunar soil, uh, forges it in its furnace, makes its parts, assembles another robot. Now there's two of them. <laughs> they then make four, and then they make eight. And then we go up there, and we just harvest a lot of aluminum. There's all this pure aluminum there that we can pick up, bring home to make into whatever we use aluminum for. So that notion has been around for a long time, but how do you actually do it? And so we're in a time when we start to think about how to do that. And we realize that if we can put these rules, these basic rules into our machines, they can then do what we do. They can self-replicate. They can do what oak trees do. They can do what bacteria do. And then we start to get this seamless uh, world of right now we have living things and non-living things. And one of the key definitions of living things is they can reproduce. They do other things with energy and stuff like that. But the most essential is they can reproduce.
And what if we can get non-living things to reproduce and do a lot of the work for us? So going back to Wolfram, we talked about his, his notion. I think when I find the code that generates our world, it'll be about six lines. He's already thinking of how to redo science from this point of view. So there's another recommended book, okay? Go to Amazon, click it off for your favorites so you can go back and look at it more thoroughly. It's called A New Kind of Science by Stephen Wolfram. Huge book. And in it, there's a lot about cellular automata. And there is a notion that he puts forward. He says, I think when Isaac Newton sought to explain our world with differential equations, he made a mistake. And instead, he should have thought in terms of software. Well, of course, Newton didn't have software. So, but today we do. So if you look at a tree, you say, well, how does a tree do it? Well, it doesn't do it with differential equations. There's no circles or ellipses in trees or clouds or rocks. But when we start to understand fractals, we can, you know, reproduce graphically things that look very much like rocks, very much like ferns, very much like trees, because the fractals are doing it the same way nature does it, which is working from simple rules that they keep repeating. So you notice in a lot of trees that the branches look like the twigs, look like the veins in the leaves, that there's this kind of repetition of a similar pattern. Why is that? It's because the tree only has one set of rules and it keeps reusing it. So the tree is using a set of rules. Now, if we can understand those rules and harness them and then put them in our, the way we make things, a whole different way of being in the world emerges. So we start to think that we, we, we realize that all through nature, in life, in non-living things, we see certain patterns. We're not allowed to talk about that because the evolutionary biologists are very afraid of, well, if there's patterns, there must be a pattern maker. And so there's a bad word for that. It's called intelligent design. And the evolutionary biologists are always on the defensive to keep intelligent design away. But those patterns do exist. And if they allowed themselves to look at them, talk about them, they start incorporating pattern understanding, information theory, and this kind of genomic way of making into their thinking whole new understandings of life and of evolution uh, are going to emerge as soon as we allow that. We put that together with uh, Bell's theorem that we talked about. We put that together with Lynn Margulis' symbiogenesis that we talked about. And then how do we, okay, now what is all of that, what does all that mean? How do we harness that? What, uh, how's the world going to be different? And I'm going to suggest that it's already starting to happen. So let me just read uh, Lynn Margulis on her symbiogenesis, and we'll think, we'll talk about how it's impacting us today. She says, all visible organisms are products of symbiogenesis without exception. The bacteria are the unit. 
The way I think about the whole world is that it's like a pointless painting. That's the Surat Sunday in the Park. You get away from it, and it looks like Surat's famous painting of people in the park. Look closely. The points are living bodies, different distributions of bacteria. Symbiogenesis recognizes that every visible life form is a combination or community of bacteria. So we're all made up of these computational computing networked items. And we start to think, how do we take advantage of that? Now I'm going to make a suggestion as we wrap up, and that is that there are special people out there. I call them visionary creatives. And these are people that live in the emerging universe, in the emerging world. And they see things before we do. And then they wonder, why doesn't anybody else see this? How come they're the only one? And they are driven to create things in art, architecture, design, technology, science, that will enable all of us to see what they see. And so I'm going to suggest a totally new way of thinking about Facebook. The Facebook is something that implements this kind of networked. Not only does it connect us to maybe friends or whatever reason we're linking to other people, but every photograph, every news item there is linked one to another. We're only beginning to understand what that means. And I mentioned earlier Elon Musk and his Tesla automobile, which is already self-driving. You just push a button that says autopilot and read the newspaper. Uh, you're not supposed to do that, but it's there. And as problematic as it is, it's computational. That means it's going to double in capability every 18 months. So in five years, it'll be, I can't do the math. <laughs> it'll be 50 times as capable as it is today. So what does that mean? So, well, you know, it sort of has this radar and looks in front of it and it sees the car in front is slowing down. No, it goes infinitely beyond that. It knows what every car on the... It, well, first of all, the car in front of it, it knows it's going to slow down because it's talking... The computer in your car is talking to the computer in that car. But it's talking to the computers in thousands of other cars. So it knows everything about what the traffic patterns are doing and can pick the best route based on that. And on top of that, it can see everybody's calendar. So it knows in an hour a bunch of people are due to get on the road and take that route. So we better take this other route. So, and that's all, you know. I'm not very imaginative. What, what do I know? But just think about what that means, that you're... The computer in your car is in touch with every other, not just every other car, every other computer out there. And they're all interacting. And what does that mean? What are they going to generate? What is the world going to look like that we'll be living in? And these people, like these visionary creatives, are the people who are thinking that way, who are living in those worlds. So I like to say that I understand these emerging worlds, but I don't experience them the way visionary creatives do. And it's those people that we look to for better or worse. Maybe some of the things they're going to do we're not too happy about. 
We'll have to see how we feel about that. So this is John Lobel. This is Visions on PRN.FM, Progressive Radio Network, here every Monday, 10 a.m., and go to the archives, visionaries.podbean.com, to see all of our back shows.